0: We're going to be talking on this portion of WGTD's morning show about one of the most important, perhaps the most important issues and concerns of the day, climate change and the catastrophic uh, possibility of of a future uh, under that very dark cloud. But we're looking at climate change today through very different eyes and uh, through the lens of a new book called Climate Restoration, which calls on the human race to not just stop what is causing climate change, but to actually seek to restore the climate of our planet, that is to restore it to uh, conditions uh, that it was were once seen on this planet, and when life was much easier and better for human beings and for all creatures for that matter. Such a possibility might seem audacious indeed, but not according to the co-authors of this new book called Climate Restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race. It is the contention of the co-authors of this book, Peter Fikowski, and my morning show guest, Carol Douglas, that there are technologies that exist today that might very well make possible uh, the removal of excess CO2 from the atmosphere. And uh, through a concerted effort to utilize these technologies, it might actually be possible not only to stop the causes of climate change, but in a sense to reverse the ravages that uh, excess carbon dioxide has caused. And uh, it is a fascinating proposition and important. And uh, I'm really glad that we can have a a few minutes to speak with Carol Douglas, an award-winning journalist who has written extensively about climate change and sustainability issues for several decades. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, uh, Psychology Today, Harper's, and in an array of books from the National Geographic Society. This current book is published by Rivertown's Books, again titled Climate Restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race. Carol Douglas, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. You really sound like you've absorbed the messages. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that.
0: No problem. Tell us how you first connected with your co-author, Peter Fikowski, and uh, the circumstances under which uh, you co-wrote this book.
1: Well, Peter Fikowski is a a physicist, entrepreneur, Silicon Valley, um, and engineer and has spent about 10 years discovering, researching and discovering how we might reclaim the climate that will allow us to survive and thrive in the future. I hooked up with him through, uh, through people I know in the environmental field. And uh, since I had written about climate before, we, um, we became writing partners. He's the prime mover. He is the moving force behind this new movement called climate of climate restoration. Hmm. And climate restoration means, as you, as you brought up, restoring the climate that humans have survived long term. It's bringing the climate back to the way it was in pre-industrial times so that farmers know when to plant. We don't have these monster storms and floods, these disabling droughts and crazy wildfires. And we get back to a world that we know how to live on Mm. and flourish in. That's the goal of climate restoration. And as you say, we already know how to do it. We have the know-how. We have the technology, which is all based on natural processes we even have financing we don't need government funding although it would be, it would help kick it off all that's missing is the will all that's missing is for everyone to stand stand up let their voice be heard that we insist on climate restoration as the goal of climate action that's not our current goal
0: mm. one of the chief points of the book is that the standards laid out in the Paris Climate Accords uh, are not enough. And of course, uh, even there, the Climate uh, Accords of Paris uh, have not been adopted by uh, every single country on earth. And uh, the United States, for a time, of course, under President Donald Trump, stepped decisively away from the Paris uh, Climate Accords uh, and its goals. But even if we were all on board, if every nation on board, uh, on the Earth was on board with the Paris Climate Accords, that would not be enough. Uh, That would be far from enough in terms of making the planet what we wanted and need it to be. Explain why that is not sufficient.
1: You're absolutely right. I think most people think that we're aiming at a livable climate, but actually... The world's current climate goal is to reduce carbon emissions until we reach net zero emissions by 2050. In other words, not putting any more in. That's the focus of the United Nations, the Paris goal, as you say, and that's what most climate activists are working on. And it's really important for lots of reasons. It's also, as you say, wholly insufficient, because if we stop burning fu- burning fossil fuels Even if we stop, we will still be left with this gigantic pool of CO2 lingering in the atmosphere, which we've pumped up there in the last two centuries. And when I say gigantic, I mean it. There's an extra trillion tons of CO2 in the atmosphere. If we don't put any more in, that's good. (laughs) But what's better... What's a a more sensible climate goal is to take that out because it's the CO2 that's up there already, and we're still adding to, that is causing the climate havoc. Mm.
0: So one of the things that your book uh, spells out are four different technologies that currently exist, I mean, to to varying degrees, uh, that are essentially technologies designed for the removal of excess CO2 from the atmosphere. Uh, and of course, we would leave it to people to uh, explore these in depth uh, by looking at your book. But summarize for us these four different technologies uh, that, that, that currently exist that could be brought to bear on uh, this issue of excess CO2 in the atmosphere.
1: Thank you, yes. We say that we can remove this excess CO2 by 2050 because Mother Nature removes CO2 all the time from the atmosphere. And now we know precisely how she does it, and we have figured out how to copy and accelerate the processes in an approach called biomimicry. We do what happens naturally, but on an accelerated scale. So here's an example Nature constantly packs away CO2 in the form of limestone. It's, limestone is magical. <laughs> limestone is nearly half, by weight, CO2. It's calcium carbonate, calcium plus CO2. So think about the White Cliffs of Dover. Most of the carbon in the world is in, is in uh, cliffs and shelves like that. It comes from... Oysters, clams, corals, and all kinds of other little tiny marine animals. They make their shells out of calcium carbonate. Then when they die, those shells drop to the seafloor, and eventually they get compressed into limestone. So again, limestone is nearly half CO2 by weight, and that's a permanent storage system. It's not coming out of limestone. So recently scientists have figured out how to make synthetic limestone from CO2. They pull out of the air and calcium they're now getting from recycled concrete. This synthetic limestone, it's pure, it's manufactured, it's tested and standardized. It's being used. It's um, used for building and for making the aggregate that goes into concrete, terrific quality concrete. Um, this, it doesn't have to be developed. It's happening right now. For example, the San Francisco Airport has already built a terminal using this carbon-negative concrete. The company, Blue Planet Systems, has built, recently built a plant in the Bay Area. And it's a, um, the San Francisco Airport Authority has purchased its entire output for the next two years. To build terminals and runways. So there's a huge demand for this climate restoring project. We, so we pull, we're, a lot of people talk about um, pulling carbon dioxide out of the air and sticking it underground or something, but that's humongously expensive and slow. Instead, we pull it out in a, in a natural way, more natural way, and store it away in products that there's a tremendous demand for that's one. The others include <laughs> very briefly um, restoring the fertility of the oceans uh, we all know that the oceans are dying and it's not just because of overfishing and coral coral bleaching um, a healthy ocean is green because it has a lot of photosynthesis going on and Photosynthesis, of course, is done by green plants, both tiny um, phytoplankton and large seaweed. And in healthy parts of the ocean, they the photosynthesis is so intense that, for one thing, it restores fisheries. It restores the chain of life in the oceans. And again, that that intense photosynthesis. Pulls in a lot of CO2, and whatever isn't eaten goes down. Um, when it dies, it sinks towards the depths of the ocean where it doesn't rot. Unlike trees, they pull in, they photosynthesize too, and they're great, but eventually they rot or they burn. Seaweed doesn't, so, um, and, and um, other sea plants, they, they don't. So that's another way, another nature. Um, biomimic way of drawing down a lot of CO2. And the others, um, there's a couple of more. Mm-hmm. Well, one is um, farming larger seaweeds, and that um, they photosynthesize like crazy. Kelp, kelp can grow two feet a day, so you can use some of it, um, and then some of it will sink and take the CO2 down to the, um, to the depths of the ocean. I find this absolutely fascinating. People, people have recently figured out how to use kelp and, and other seaweeds, sargassum, as a substitute for petroleum. I kid you not. You can make biofuel out of it. You can make um, fu- all kinds of foods and food products out of the the kelp version, you can make um, fertilizers, uh, the basis for medicines, and even um, plastics and a vegan leather out of seaweed. So that's, that's, um, that's starting to take off, and that's very exciting.
0: What's interesting to me, among other things, is that in at least one of these cases, it sounds like we're talking about a technology that was not developed from the start with this climate issue in mind or at least not primarily I mean that these at least some of these technologies are perhaps with us for other reasons and can in a sense be redirected to this pressing even paramount issue of climate change Uh, is that fair to say
1: in some cases absolutely yes um People have been farming seaweed forever. It's very, very big in in parts of Asia. Um, in fact, there's a lot of there's components of seaweed in a lot of our products, particularly ice cream. <laughs> um, this some of this is newer. They they some of um, so that's a traditional industry. Um, some of these newer efforts are being designed specifically with. Um, the carbon dioxide removal aspect in mind in such a way that they make products that people will buy. And that's really important, because if you, if you take CO2 out of the air and you stick it in the ground, that doesn't do anything for anyone, right? You're not making anything useful. You just have to keep paying for that to happen. And it's quite expensive. If you take CO2 out of the air or the ocean, um, and you make something useful with it, you sell it at a, in a very large scale, not little, little things, but on a large scale. You make um, synthetic limestone or, um, or these kelp farms. You're actually, you're actually creating a market so that it can pay for itself. Um, you, you enrich the fertility of the oceans in certain small areas the fisheries come back and climate restoration then is paid for by the fishing market so that's I find just absolutely intriguing and I think that's um, a large part of what will make this successful is that it only takes investment. Um, <clears throat> for which there will be some return. It doesn't take you know, trillions of government dollars. Mm.
0: One thing that is compelling about at least some of these possibilities is that it is a matter of turning to nature and to some of the climate restoration that Mother Nature herself or itself has already achieved uh, earlier in our planet's history. That, in fact, uh, this is not something, in a sense, utterly new. And uh, and there's something sort of oddly reassuring about the thought that some of these efforts would, in a sense, piggyback on or in some ways even sort of mimic what the planet Earth itself has done before earlier in its history.
1: Exactly, exactly right. In fact, this trillion tons of CO2 happens to be the same amount that nature has withdrawn from the atmosphere ten times over the last million years. Um, CO two mounts up, gets very, very high. These things kick in. Um, photosynthesis goes crazy in the ocean, and um, little shelled creatures are busy building their shells and making limestone. And the temperature uh, and CO two levels drop. You can see this on a map over the, of the last. Um, million years, a uh, graph of the CO two ups and downs. So, of course, when nature does it, it happens over thousands of years, and we need it to happen um, over decades. And but we know how to do it. Yes, it's not like putting enormous mirrors in the sky or in, you know stuff like that, um, which may have its own merits. But this is um, it's biomimicked, and sometimes we call it geomimicry as well. Uh, creating synthetic limestone.
0: What would you gauge the level of preparedness in terms of these technologies? I suspect that uh, in in order to, to do this and to accomplish it, uh, the technologies need further development, further refinement and so on. Uh, I'm not even sure how one gauges that or scales that sort of thing, but, I mean, where are these technologies at this moment?
1: Great question. They are developed. They are um, researched. They're developed, and what we think is that they need to be scaled up and can be scaled up enough to withdraw the quantities needed. Over the over this decade, and then work at full tilt uh, for the next 20 years, so that we are done by 2050. Um, they've all been tested. They've all been um, demonstrated. They all they work. Um, well, one of them is a little yeah. The, the three that I mentioned, they they work. Um, and of course, like any large project. They're being, they're being refined all the time, and of course, like with any large project, they will be consistently, constantly monitored so that if anything should go awry, it, it can be course-corrected. It's, it's, it's a project. Um, so, yeah, this uh, synthetic limestone, as I mentioned, San Francisco Airport is all over it, and um, they have new plants going up in Europe and other places. Um, the seaweed, the, it's called, <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the projects is called a marine permaculture array, meaning that you have these frames that you um, set out in, the, in precise areas in the open ocean, so you're not near the shore, um, and kelp can attach to these frames and it becomes a whole little mini-ecosystem. The fish come for habitat and then the little, you know, the big fish eat the little fish and all that stuff. Um, that is, it has been developed, it's still in process of, of scaling. Um, so it's in, some, it's in some process of, of um, demonstration.
0: A last question, how would you characterize Uh, the receptiveness of the overall scientific community to some of these possibilities.
1: Yes, it varies a lot. Um, Part of, well, okay. Our premise is that everyone wants to restore a safe climate, a climate that we know is safe because humans have survived in it long term. That's our premise. And that, for, for it to happen, we need to make climate restoration our goal. It's not going to happen just if we, if we keep saying all we need to do is stop emissions. We need to make it our goal. Now, a lot of the scientists have spent their careers following the UN and other um, um, directives, agreements, and worked for 20, 30, 40 years. On reducing emissions as the goal. So they're not always receptive to this whole new paradigm of saying, that's not good enough. You know, when you're flying a plane, one of your objectives is not to crash. <laughs> but you also need a goal to get to New York by three o'clock with everyone safely and um, and get everybody out. So we have our current goal is simply not to crash to avoid the worst of climate chaos we're suggesting we need to make the goal actually restoring the climate that we know we can survive on so that's kind of it's really a paradigm shift once we make that the goal there will be a whole lot more science a whole lot more activity a whole lot for for instance um one of these big four, which is restoring fertility in, and photosynthesis in the ocean, the, um, there's currently a, a consortium of about 40 universities around the world who study oceanography and marine biology. And they are, um, they're, they're planning to look into that from all kinds of aspects. However, the only way you really know that it will work is to do it and it has been done and it did work. So yeah, people are in varying, in varying, um, stages of acceptance and enthusiasm about climate restoration.
0: Well, it certainly is an intriguing notion and, uh, one that, uh, comes from a place of, of ultimate optimism. And, uh, this is a book that is carefully and meticulously crafted and, uh, In reading it, one can explore all of these uh, intriguing possibilities further. The book, again, is titled Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. It is published by Rivertown's Books, the co-author Peter Fikowski, and my morning show guest, Carol Douglas. Carol Douglas, thank you for being with me on the morning show today and uh, for having this intriguing conversation. A very best wishes to you.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.